Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I don't know how many of you have been thinking about the book, The Secret. How many of us have been reading Success Principles books, books about prosperity, books about manifestation? Well, I'll tell you what, it's a lot more popular now than it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. But some of the greatest leaders in the world started the New Thought Movement. Our guest today, Dr. Ann Kunith, is a founder of the Church of Today. She's a ordained minister. She's a doctor of divinity, of divine science. She's the author of The Art of Making Things Happen. She's a gifted speaker. She's appeared on television and radio in connection with her books and seminars. She is also someone who has been mentored by the First Lady of the New Thought Movement, Dr. Catherine Ponder. I've asked her to join us today to talk about the subject we're all fascinated with, money. <laughs> How do you make a lot of it? How do you step into your wealth? How do you step into your prosperity? And how do we get more access to manifesting money? Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Ann Kunith, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. Thank you. Thank you. I guess the first question I want to ask you is, what is it about money that's eluding most of the population of the world? We find it difficult to get it. We find it difficult to keep it. And we spend recklessly without thought. And our attitudes about money are wrong. Talk about that. Okay. We have been trained over the years, most of us, that money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. It is not even the love of money that's the root of all evil. It's when we love only money and don't realize, don't understand that money is what makes this world work. We have to have money in order to build schools and hospitals and buy food and clothe our children and make our systems work. And when we can change our attitudes about it and say money is good, I use it for the benefit of ourselves, our humanity, the world is good, money is good, people are good, then our whole world can begin to change and we become receptive to all things good instead of having to feel as if we're fighting for it. That's a lot of how people talk about it, like their attention is on it, they are fighting for it. There is this paradigm about money that you're describing, and more. Yes. One of the things that I used to tell people when I was giving a workshop on uh, money is by calling money the root of all evil and condemning it, drove it away. What you condemn, you drive away. What you bless and praise, you attract. So by condemning it that money's not good and people are selfish about money and people who love money are into the things of life rather than the ideas and the giving and the receiving. So in that whole attitude, we have made money an evil. It's not. It's good. It's the thing that makes the world work. So with all of this changing that we're trying to make in this world today, to understand that money is a use, as we use it, it creates for our lives 
a sense of self-satisfaction that we can do these things. And the more we have, the more we can give. The more we have, the more we can share. Uh, the more we have, the more money we have, the more experience we have, the wiser we make our decisions. And so it's more beneficial to everybody. One of the things I think is interesting I wanted to share with you in this broadcast today is that in the business paradigm, there's this law of supply and demand. And in the law of supply and demand, there is this contrived scarcity that there's a limited supply. And because of this business model paradigm, which is entrenched in economics, aside from people's fears and concerns and worries, which get projected into environments, right, their vibratory capacity, this whole idea of scarcity feels like it's inbred in us. Where does it come from? I think it's still a hangover from when we were children, our parents were children, and there was not enough to go around, and they were taught you have to save for everything, and you have to be careful about what you eat, what you choose to have in your life, what you spend your money for. And we were not given the freedom to say, okay, there's plenty. The more money I have, the more I can give, the more I can share. We've got to change our complete attitude about it. And in order to give more, we have to receive more. It's a double action here that we have to get into our heads. I know people that do affirmations and they pray and they just come from that because they do affirmations and they pray that money's going to come to that. Is it partially true? They have to believe it. Until a person can believe that money's not a struggle, their subconscious is not going to work in order to put them in a place that they can receive easily. That's so critical what you said. And now we know so much more than we even did 50 years ago about how the subconscious works right. and how it keeps delivering more of the same in our lives. Right. So with regard to getting through to the subconscious regarding this transformational paradigm about money, what do you recommend? And what has, let's say, Catherine Ponder also recommended if there's some pieces that you can share from both you and her? Oh, to be easy, to change our attitude about it, we have to learn that we can do whatever we set our minds to do without struggle. But that's true about everything in life. We can choose struggle. When you hear people that are talking about struggle or a marriage, for example, people that are talking about marriage is so difficult and their spouse is so hard to get along with and he doesn't understand or she doesn't understand, it's going to be a difficult marriage and it may not last. If somebody is praising and appreciating their partners in life, they're going to get along better and they will be happier. And money has the same kind of self-consciousness about it, that if we love money, we attract money. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to attract a million dollars, but it will mean that if we're going to buy a sofa and we expect to spend $1,000 and we believe that we always get the best buy, we can tell ourselves that and convince ourselves that, then we're going to go out and that $1,000 sofa is going to be on sale for 500 So it, it goes back to attitude. What do you believe that you can get? Do you believe you can get good buys or do you believe that the price is marked up just before you walk in the store? 
So let's talk about that belief part as it relates to money more concretely, if we can, Mm -hmm. which is that how do we bypass the subconscious? How do you recommend we bypass the subconscious? I like to use denials and affirmation. Now, some of the New Thought people don't like denials. They say you can't say I'm not going to and it's not going to work as well. You've got to put in the affirmations. But if we have a very strong belief about anything, let me not use money. Let me use health, for example. Okay. If a parent tells a child, uh, you're just like your father, he was an alcoholic. The chance that child's going to grow up as an alcoholic is going to be pretty strong. If they tell the child that the father's no good and can't save money, that child's going to be doing that. So in what we allow ourselves to believe and disbelieve rules our world. And it's a very strong point, I think, that until we learn that we have to keep everything on a positive note. And until we can believe something totally, it's not going to work as well for us as if we had been trained as children that you're a wonderful child and you're always going to be happy and loving and kind. You're going to have good jobs. You'll get a good education. All of those things that child falls into. It makes it an easy life rather than a struggling life. Is that because as children we're subject to direct belief? Yes. Yeah, we just accept a lot of what we're told. Right. Children, we've got people that are telling us everything. We've got our parents, and if they had a struggling childhood, they're going to influence us toward that struggling childhood. If they have a struggling adulthood, that will continue on into the adults unless the child is strong enough to say, wait a minute, that's not going to fit me. I'm not going to do that. And remove that from their own belief system. Our belief systems rule how our lives are going to be. So one of the prayers could be for the audience, for example, for God, or I don't know how you do your prayers, to remove false belief systems that are not empowering their lives. Correct. I like to use for myself any belief that I have that limits me in any way is dissolved, completely gone. I cannot, I will not be limited in any way. I choose to accept life, abundance, happiness, peace of mind, joy, and all the things that create happy people. And how many times should people say that? (laughs) Until they believe it. Which for some people who have been given this struggling belief system is going to take a lot of affirmations of that sort to finally get them out until they have two or three things that happen in their life that they feel like calling luck. And when they can begin to say, you know, I've been pretty lucky in the last six weeks. They'll begin to believe that whatever they learned earlier is not true. And so it changes their whole subconscious in there. You know, speaking of luck, there was a project, a study done on luck. And one of the findings that came out of the study on luck is that people who thought they were lucky were. (laughs) They had more luck than anybody else. Right. If they said, I'm so lucky, 
where they come from, that they're lucky, that belief actually created more synchronicity, more things happening and popping. And I think it was done out of England. Uh-huh. Isn't that interesting? According to your beliefs, it is done unto you. According to your beliefs, it is done unto you. So you've worked with a lot of people over God knows how many years, over 30 years. Yes. What are the biggest breakthroughs you've seen relative to the focus of money in your career? I have seen people come out of poverty, people with no jobs, no futures, no abilities to think of themselves as anything but beaten and downtrodden. And when they can come out of that and say, whoops, wait a minute, and they can do that if one good thing happens to them that they can put their faith in. But they have to, in some way, create a situation in their life that they know is going to be a winner. And a lot of people have started, and it's sort of a ridiculous way to look at it, but it works, by asking for things like parking places. I always have a parking place right in front of where I want to park. Somebody's just coming out as I want to put my car in. And after saying this for several days, it happens. What allows that to happen? What is that? Is that a synchronization with the universe? What is that? You're at the right place at the right time to be lucky. If you believe you're lucky, if you want to change who you are and what you are, you begin to claim that. And luck is one of the best ways because some of it makes no sense. You know, a place where cars are uh, um, backed up for half a mile trying to find a parking place to all of a sudden the person right in front of you is backing out and you're the only one there. That's luck. Assumed luck. It's not. It's because you have a belief that somewhere you can find a parking place. It's going to be exactly where you want it to be. It's going to be convenient for you. It's going to be plenty of room to get your car in there. And it's now. And that will work for you. That's the way we begin to start believing that the world is assisting us instead of the world being against us. Talk about also why it is that in New Thought that there is this paradigm about God or the universe being the endless supplier, that when we look to the world of supply, the things, the manifest world, if we see lack somewhere or need somewhere, we buy into the physical manifestation of what we see with our eyes in the natural. Right. But that's not what the New Thought paradigm is. The new thought paradigm has to do with the universe being the supplier. Can you explain that as a key to manifesting money? When we're giving affirmations to people and telling them how to change their life and how to make things happen in their life, one of the things that we tell them is don't outline. Don't tell the universe how you're going to get it. You have to have, this is what I choose to have in my life. Show me the way. And you open the doors for the unexpected. When we set a limit on how it has to come through, Uncle Joe or Uncle Aunt Susie has to give me uh, the money for a new car or anything of that sort, we limit the way the universe can give to us. We 
cut out everything, every other opportunity that we might have, including money coming into us. The business model, so interesting, is all about planning and knowing ahead of time and trying to control and outline everything all in front and how you're going to get it done. And this is one of the reasons, in my view, by the way, why the venture capital world is absolutely stuck mm-hmm. and immobile, meaning that so many more ventures would be funded if they based their funding criteria not based on how it's all going to be made to happen, but based on other criteria. It's very interesting. It's like there's a lockdown on manifestation. Yes, and our ideas are that it's struggle. We have to find a way, and we don't. We just have to ask, claim it, say it, and be open and receptive to the many wonderful ways that we can demonstrate things. There's a piece that I found very interesting in one of your articles. I think Catherine also talked about this too, but but it talked about when you're in the midst of bringing something through or calling it in that you want, that's dear to your heart, there's a recommendation not to tell and talk about it with others. Right. Talk about that. I think that's very critical. And actually, that's the advice that poets and artists have taken on to not dissipate the energy of what they're doing and what they're receiving. But talk about that. Okay. When we tell what we want to people who doubt, they're going to put their doubt out into the universe. And if they tell us, you don't really believe that's going to happen, it will create doubt in us. Right. As a reinforcer, correct? Uh And so you get a few of those doubts stuck in your head that you are not able to overcome or people talk about it. People will say, you know, I heard that Ann say the other day that this was what she was going to do and there's no way. Then maybe she tells 10 people. Then those 10 people are going to say, well, there's no way she can do it. She's going to be disappointed in that. And that 10 tells another 10 and that You know, and it just goes on and on and on. So things that you want, things that you're planning to do, you keep quiet and tell only those people who are supportive of you and who understand the responsibilities of what we are doing when we start making our claims and begin to manifest these ideas. I have to tell you something interesting I learned as a young child that's very much uh, attuned to what you're describing. I was a tournament tennis player that began my career with a gentleman named Michael Amador who had to leave the city after about a year of coaching me and introduced me to a champion named Pancho Segura, greatest coach of my life. And he had another student he was working with named Jimmy Connors. And Jimmy Connors used to walk onto the court, I kid you not, saying, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm a champion. I'm the greatest. It was like wild. It was almost like Muhammad Ali. But I have to tell you, this guy emanated the greatest championship energy. He took full possession of that part of this sport. Mm-hmm. And I watched it unfold. <laughs> One day, and I was a tournament tennis player for like 13 years. I walked into a tournament and I told my mother, I said, I'm going to do what Jimmy does. (laughs) Now, I didn't do that to the person I was playing against. 
I just said, this tournament is mine. I'm taking this tournament. I own this tournament. I'm the champion of this tournament, etc. Boom. It happened. It was the strangest, most mystical thing as a young person. And I knew there was a connection, but I didn't know what it was. <laughs> yes, you claimed it. <laughs> My dad, one time when I was, um, oh, I guess in high school, and I wanted to do something and... I was t- talking to my father about it, and I said, I want to do this, and I play basketball. I want to do this, and I want to have the best team that they've ever had in this school, and we're going to win everywhere. And my brother walked up and said, ah, you don't think you can play basketball. You're just a little girl. And my dad said, yes, you can. And when he said that, I knew I could. And we became uh, state champions that year. Was that your first aha experience with claiming what you want? Yes. How does it manifest for the rest of us? For example, when a person is in the process and in the transition of claiming what they want, how does it express itself? What does that mean? What are they saying? What are they doing that illustrates that they're claiming what they want? Their attitude changes. Their Demeanor changes. My brother used to walk in because he did everything. And he would walk into a room and you knew when he walked in because he strutted. He didn't just walk in. He didn't hang his head down. He didn't act as if he was shy. He walked in and he owned the room. Got it. And when he played basketball or baseball, he was a baseball player. And when he played baseball and he walked out with that bat, you knew he was going to get a hit. When it was his turn to pitch or catch or whatever it was doing, he would catch balls that nobody could catch that were over his head, and he would jump, and it was as if he went six feet up in the air because he believed he could. So claiming what you want is going to be expressing itself and emanating through a person's vibration. Right. If you don't believe it at first, just keep saying it. I can do all things. I can do everything. I'm good. I'm wonderful. I started telling my children when they were small, uh, you can do anything you want to do. And they have pretty much done that. Everything from sports to band to anything that they went through in school, uh, they were number one. What have been some of the most difficult challenges that you've had in your life that you have had to put your own advanced paradigm and new thought relative to money to work in your life? Relative to money. Let me give you one on health. Okay. First, (laughs) I have a daughter who was diagnosed with leukemia when she was five years old. When I went to the doctor, he had taken a blood test, and I went to the doctor, and he gave me the results, and he said, I need you to come back. I need to take another test. That one was not good. Let's take another one, and then you come back tomorrow. And Three times he did this, and the the last time when I went in, he sat there with tears in his eyes, and he says, I don't know how to tell you this. He says, I have had to tell parents this three times this week, and he says, I can't handle it. He said, she has leukemia. She doesn't have long to live. I don't know if I was just too young at that point to let fear take over or if something in me just said no. So I went home 
And I sat down in another room and I held her, I rocked her, and I said, no, 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 that's not my truth, no, no. And I said no for hours. Took her back the next week for her checkup. He took her blood test again, called me back the next day and said, we well, got to take another blood test. Called me back again, said, we've got to take another blood test. And after the third blood test, he said, I don't know what happened, but he said, last week she tested with leukemia. This week she doesn't have it. What do you equate that to? You denying the existence of disease in your daughter's body? Well, that's the only thing I have to think it in any way affected it. Did you speak to God? How did you talk to God? I just said no. No, 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 no. That one word. That's one of the things that Catherine teaches is your no power. Talk about that. Your no power is when something comes up or somebody tells you something that is, they think, a fact of what is going to be. And you have the courage to sit there and say no, either to them or it doesn't matter whether it's with them or not, and just say no to yourself. You are the one that's putting yourself in charge of whatever it is that was coming up. And when you say, no, I will not accept this in my life, and you convince yourself that you are in control, I refuse to have this in my life, I will not have it in my life, go away, then the universe responds. And that's the joy of working with metaphysics is when this huge universe out here begins to assist you in either denying something or claiming it, whichever one is correct for you, it begins to work. And you can do it with anything. The example you gave of your daughter and what you did was beautiful. Isn't that remarkable? Yes. By the way, she's almost 50 years old now. Wow. <laughs> wow. You're getting younger. <laughs> I, I deny aging. <laughs> she has never uh, been sick since that time. She's not even had a cold. That means the angels are around her a lot. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Talk about your denial affirmations. Give an example of a few of them related to money or health, for example. Okay. Now, not all of New Thought believes in denials. I believe in it very strongly because when we have something, a belief system, that it's a negative one, that we think of something negative that can happen or bad luck or, or it's raining outside and I'm not going to be able to go where I want to go, you can even stop the rain or slow it down to a point that you can get out and go to wherever it was that you're supposed to be going and have it so that the ideas in your mind take precedence. And you know it's sort of difficult to stop the rain. Indeed. But when you begin to say that there's something wonderful that's happening in my life, I can make it happen, this is what I choose. And you just make a choice. When you have something that is imminent in your life, after the first few times when you see how it's going to work, you set up this ahead of time, that I have such a thing coming up 
and I want good weather. And like a picnic. And people say, oh, I do hope it doesn't rain. Oh, we can't have it. Oh, we And the fear begins to come out. And the chances of it raining get stronger. But if somebody in the group is saying, it never rains on my parade. It never rains when I have something planned. Then that's what begins to energize the world according to a person with a strong belief that has seen it work. And that's the big key is to make choices ahead of time and get it established before you have all these people that are saying it's going to rain. But it's, it's like this, talk about jobs. A person who's out of work that's saying, oh, there just aren't any jobs out there, is going to have much more difficulty finding a job than somebody who says, oh, there's plenty of jobs out there. I just have to go the right direction. Show me the direction. And they begin to cooperate with the universe to know who to call or to talk to the person that just had an opening in their office, or something of that sort. The universe will match you with where you were asking it to go. And part of this is that most of us are used to looking into the world of the natural, the manifest form. That's why I tell people, don't listen to the news. Don't listen to the reports on the economy. It's concocted anyway. You might as well be involved in God's economy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I tell my people... When I'm teaching this, and I usually teach one of these every couple of months, an all-day workshop, but when I do this and I tell people, you listen to the news and you change everything that's on there. When you hear that your city is a high-crime city, you say, no, it's not. This city is safe and secure. Help the universe. Help the people around you instead of agreeing with whatever fabricated story they're coming up with. Very interesting. I think also that a lot of people hold a belief that they cannot affect or impact the unmanifest realm or change what is already manifested and that somehow the news goes into the mental fabric. It goes into our belief structure. It goes into consciousness and it's assumed as truth. It's assumed as facts. Right. And things can always be changed. Always. Let's talk about manifesting millions. Have you read The Millionaires of Genesis? Yes. What'd you think of that book? I think it's fabulous. Share a little about it. Do you remember the pieces of it? No, just that that was taken from the Old Testament of how people had their own belief systems. And if they believed in themselves, they could manifest money. And it just shows Catherine was a genius at taking the Bible and putting it into the now to be able to realign the people that she was working with, the people that she taught, taking something that, you know, was 2,000 years old and changing it into, why don't we do that now? Was it 2,000 or 6,000 years old? Well, the Old Testament was 6,000. The New Testament's shorter. Got it. Okay. When you first were speaking, you were speaking of the Old Testament. So you're talking about creating a metaphysical alignment for the New Testament, correct? Right. Okay. Tithing. There's so much misunderstanding about tithing. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us, there's this belief that when you tithe 10%, 
you create a huge vacuum for manifestation. Is that correct? Well, that's correct, but the people have to also accept it and begin to believe it. If they believe it as they first start it, it works immediately. But if they say, I'm going to say, well, I have to get a pay raise or I have to get Uncle Joe has to give me some money or uh, I get a new job or work overtime or to get the extra money, then that's what they're going to have to do, and it doesn't work for them. But when people can believe, I tithed, and begin to look, because people don't always see that the way that they're gaining extra is from the common everyday things that they wouldn't have thought about. For example, if you go to the grocery store and all the groceries are on sale that you need that day, and you get $100 of groceries for only about 50 or $60, you got a good deal. You just got a bonus. Or if you're clothes shopping and you go in and somebody's just putting the correct blouse that you just needed for a particular outfit and it's half price, you just got a deal. The universe has heard you. And that's the way that it begins to start. Your gas goes further. All of a sudden, you fill up your tank with gas and... It goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and runs and runs. And you realize that something has happened in your car. What constitutes a tithe from your perspective and Catherine Ponder's perspective? 10% of your income. Right off the top. First fruits? Right off the top. And that goes where? That goes to the person where you receive spiritual help. And a lot of times it doesn't work because you're giving it to the wrong place. People who would come into our church would continue to tithe at the church they grew up in. But they never went there anymore. They didn't even live in that town. Their parents didn't live there. But they felt like this was a small country church and they needed to support it. And they're not getting any help from it. They're getting the help from what they're listening to on Sundays now. They're getting a whole new value, but they're not able to switch that tithe to the place where they get spiritual help. And sometimes that differs because there are people that don't go to church that are still tithing to something or somebody, and it can be uh, other things that they're getting help from. For example, a Red Cross or Salvation Army or something, somebody like that that really has taken them under their wings and said, here, we'll help you. Let's say that somebody's giving 10% of their income or 10% of their company income, either personal or company. Does it matter or does it matter? Both. Let's say they give it to feeding the children or bringing water where it's needed so people have clean, fresh drinking water. Is that considered also tithing? Not if you're not getting spiritual help from them. You have to be getting spiritual help. But... That would be considered a donation under the rule that if you tithe to your spiritual help, then you can give an extra blessing if you wanted to give another 10%, which would make the 20%. But on that 10%, the extra 10%, you can claim much greater returns on it because that's over and above the requirement. 
it's like a, you're giving the universe a bonus. And I, I want to help this person. Or I want to do this. Then the blessings really begin to come back in unforeseen ways that are so helpful, so bountiful, that it's, it's just joy. What do you say to very religious people who are coming from a paradigm or mindset that sees metaphysics and receives metaphysics as a kind of devilish anti-Jesus or anti-God thing? Uh, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, I tell them that they need to study it a little bit and find out more in detail, that it's a benefit that can help the whole world become more receivable because it brings in gratitude. It brings in a lot of thanksgiving. It brings in a lot of who can we help today type thing. It really is one of the most beneficial things that would happen if we could get the whole world tithing. You know how I found out that the Bible was metaphysical? Uh-uh. Through Joel Osteen. Uh-huh. And Joel Osteen in very traditional religious communities, they really don't like them. But for people that are open and more receptive to the deep metaphysical translation of the Bible, he does it mm-hmm. brilliantly. Mm-hmm. He's one of them that does it. Yeah. You agree? Yes. Have you gone to hear Joel? Uh, I listen to him on the radio. No, I haven't seen him in person. He's quite a guy. Yeah. How old were you when you met Catherine Ponder? I was probably about 25. How did you meet her, and how did you start in metaphysics with her? She was uh, had the Unity Church in San Antonio, and she was giving her lessons in one of the hotels downtown because the church was too small for her. <laughs> she couldn't fit them all in. So she did the uh, service in a, one of the churches. And what happened to you? I liked it. I thought it was wonderful attitude and a way to have, and she was telling me things I'd never heard of before. My parents came from a Southern Baptist and a lot of hellfire and damnation, and <laughs> I had not believed that. And when I was five years old, I decided there was no God. And my father was talking about God one day, and my brother said something smart like, and I turned to him, and I just heard the word fool. And I thought, I'm going to use that word, and he won't know what it means. So I turned to him, and I said, oh, you fool, to my brother. And my father snatched me up by my shirt top and said, pointing his fingers at me, Thou shalt not call our brother a fool, for thou art in danger of hellfire and damnation. Call us his brother a fool. And I knew that I was going to die that night when I went to bed. I told everybody goodbye, that I would not wake up the next morning. Five years old. And when I woke up the next morning, the only thing that ran through my head was, if God, Daddy's fooled. There is no God. I didn't die. And from the time I was five until I was in my late 20s, I did not believe in God because my daddy was being fooled and all the things he had told me were not true. And when I started going to Catherine, got into metaphysics, I understood that This God that was supposed to be throwing thunderbolts was not a person. That it was an energy field, a force field that was cause and effect. Was your mind blown? Yes. I didn't tell anybody for several years because I was afraid they would think I was crazy. (laughs) Wow. And you were at the very beginning of the New Thought Movement, weren't you? 
No, the New Thought Movement really is much older than people give it credit for being. The more recent times when unity and uh, religious science were founded, the New Thought get popular. But it was known from even before Jesus. Before Jesus? Yeah. Do you pray to Jesus? No. Do you pray to God? I pray to myself. Pray to yourself? My beliefs are that part of me inside that I believe when you hear people say, well, God is within you. Yes. I believe that, that God is in every cell of my body. And if I keep my words positive, I have good things happen. If I don't keep my words and I get suspicious about the news and people who say doomsday, then I see negative things happen and it reflects in my life. So I make sure that I don't believe things like that, that I can listen to it and I can say that's not my truth. That's not me. It used to keep me really, really busy. Now it's just, uh uh-uh. Let's talk about time relative to manifesting money. Do you have any interesting stories or synopsis of what you've seen over the years? I've seen people that manifested very, very quickly within the same hour that they had asked for something, that somebody would walk up and just hand them whatever it was that they wanted. It's easier to manifest things other than money because we have a way of outlining how money is going to come to us. We think it's got to be a pay raise or it has to be something else or donation from somebody. But when we ask for a thing, like one day I said, I need a loaf of bread. My children are coming home. I don't have the car home. So, oh, dear. And my neighbor came in and she says, and you remember last week I borrowed the bread from you and I forgot to return it and handed me a loaf of bread. That's a demonstration. Yes. So you raised five children with your husband. Mm -hmm. Was it difficult to share metaphysics with your husband and your children, or did they receive it well and quickly? Well, my husband, he went to church because he was Catherine's assistant for a while, platform assistant for a while. I don't think he ever really believed it, but he was in a good position, and he sort of faked it. But he wasn't, he never did get really, really positive to deliberately make things work. My children would always come to me and ask me for whatever it was they wanted. And I'd say, well, let's sit down together and we'll do a visualization. And that worked. I wouldn't do it for them. I would help them with it. What do you think of vision boards where you put pictures of the things that you want and connect with? They work too. I think they're effective. In fact, Catherine would tell a story that when she was here in San Antonio, she wanted to join a particular country club, and she made a picture board. She called them treasure maps and had them at this place. She went out and took a picture of the club and took a picture of them walking into the house, into the building, and put it on her wall. She looked at it for several days until it so she started getting tired of it. And then she put it under her bed. She had on a huge poster board. About two or three weeks later, her husband was in a hardware store. This is a true story. Was in a hardware store, and he was a talker, southern talker, that he would just stand around and talk to anybody and everybody and be friendly. And a man that worked in the store was in there, and he said, 
you know, Catherine's got it in her head. She wants to join the club, and he said, I don't want to do something like that. I'll have to be taking her out there all the time and getting dressed up. And the man said, well, how much does she want to be in it? And he said, well, a whole lot, but I don't. And he says, well, let me know if you really want to be in it. And the man said, what can you do about it? Yeah, you're going to get me in there. Man says, "Yeah, I'm chairman of the board." Wow. <laughs> yeah. So she became a member. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. See, I love those stories because those stories are the material of demonstration and the things that sometimes people don't talk about, but they should talk about them. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been speaking with, learning from, and listening to Anne Kunith. The ordained minister, doctor of divinity of divine science, a published author, lecturer, and gifted speaker. She is going to come back and join us again. We thank you so, so much for being a guest on It's Rainmaking Time. Thank you so much for your time. And what a blessing you are. Oh, thank you so much. I have enjoyed it. It's great to laugh with you, and it's great to hear these wonderful stories.